0: All right, if you would go ahead and find a seat. It was such a joy to be able to celebrate and to welcome our new partners. So thank you guys for being part of that. And again, uh, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And so again, so grateful that you guys are here. Thanks for bringing the church into this space. For those of you joining us for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or wherever you happen to be. To be gathered. Uh, if you're like, oh, I hope somebody different comes up on stage. Uh, no, it's me again. So uh, we are going to dive in this morning as we continue this series that's called Restore My Soul. And this is taken from the 23rd Psalm. All right. And it is this promise really that the Lord is the one who restores our souls. But it also is what we're talking about it as is really a prayer. Something we're offering up to God, like, Lord, restore my soul. Like we have just face so much, right? I mean, just the reality of life and there's things that are happening and we feel battered and bruised and our soul needs this renewal and this refreshment. And so each week we've been looking at a particular truth to combat the lies that we hear over and over and over again because here's the reality, every single one of us are being discipled by some narrative. And so it's either the narrative of the culture and what you have to do and you as the ultimate self Or it's the narrative of the gospel of who Jesus is and what it looks like to have your life transformed, renewed, to have your soul restored by him. And so each week this fall, we are taking time to look at a truth that is so important. What truth are you resting on? in. Now, there's a story that I I came across uh, recently. Perhaps you're familiar with this particular story, but it's the story of a guy who is going into his senior year of high school. Some of you might be able to relate to uh, this, not because you're a senior in high school, but maybe you remember these days, okay? Um, And in this particular account, he is somebody, he did not get good grades. He was getting in a lot of trouble. Um, He did not apply himself. He just He was close to flunking out of school. His mom was on his case all the time, and he was just like, I don't know, I just don't care. But then it came time for uh, standardized testing. It came time for him to take, all his friends were taking the SAT, all right? And so like anybody else, he was like, I don't know, I'm not probably even gonna go to college. I don't know if I have any desire to this. More school sounds awful, but whatever. I'll go take this test. And so he takes this particular test, all right? And then weeks go by, and he's awaiting his results. Maybe some of you remember the, those days. And, but he didn't. He's not really even anxiously waiting, because he's like, I literally don't care. All right? I was probably just forced to go take this dumb test. Well, the test results show up at the house one day, and he opens it up. And to his great surprise, and to the surprise of his mother, he got a 1480 on the SAT. All right? Out of 1600. All right? And suddenly, he was like, oh. And his mom immediately goes, did you cheat? All right? All um, right. It's like, no, I swear. All right. But this objective reality of sorts began to change. Like He began to live in a whole new way because suddenly something had shifted. There was this objective source that said and communicated to him like, hey, there's a level of intelligence here. And so he began to sort of lean into that. And rather than Disregarding class and homework, he began to apply himself. All right, rather than thinking maybe, you know, at college is for other people, he applied and he got into a college, would later go on to get like a master's degree, would be an entrepreneur, like would, would have this very successful life. But the story goes that about 12 years after this sort of change in his life, this big direction, this 1480 that arrived, and how it changed the trajectory of his life. Because he began to believe this truth about who he was. He was married at the time. Now, and his his wife gets this letter. And it's from the SAT boards. All right? And he opens up the letter and reads that in the year he took it, there were 12 people that were accidentally mailed the wrong results. He did not get a 1480. He got a 740. All right? And some of you are like, that's me. That's my boy right there. Right? Anyway. um, And... He had this moment of like, "Oh oh my goodness," And yet, guess what? Like he cont- what had happened, what had transpired is like he had believed a new reality, right? Now, we know at the end of the day and in this part of this story, it's like, oh, but it actually wasn't accurate, but friends, what I'm putting before you this morning is this. If there could be a test that would declare, even for a period of time, that he is a certain type of person in the world and that changed his life, imagine for a moment if we grabbed hold of the truth of who we are in Christ, didn't believe the lies, and know this, you're not going to get a letter a decade plus from now that says, oops, sorry, God accidentally let you into the kingdom. No, you are his son and you're his daughter right here, right now, forever. And so if that gets a hold of our hearts, imagine the change that could take place. So even things like this, as we look at this text this morning, we're gonna get into 1 Peter chapter two, but just consider this question. Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Now, certainly at one level, we all have to acknowledge if you're like, oh, I never sin, then you're just a liar, therefore a sinner, all right? But (laughs) what's your fundamental identity? Maybe you grew up in a tradition where there's sainthood and those things. You're like, well, yeah, the saints for other people. Friends, I wanna communicate to you this morning, not what I wanna communicate, but what the Bible over and over and over again communicates. You look at like Paul's letters and he writes to churches and over and over again, guess what he calls them? Saints, set apart, holy. Like how can that actually be true? But that's what he's saying. And if you're like, yeah, but the people back then, like they weren't as sinful. No, 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 my friend, like Paul calls the church in Corinth, the letters of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, saints. They were highly skilled. Their great skill in life was breaking most of the commandments, all right? Like that was what, and Paul has to write to them to do all this corrective work, and yet he still addresses them as saints, not because they're impressive or because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. And if they are in Christ, it changes everything and it is a once and for all, and nothing can change. There's no future letter that comes and says, oh, sorry, you didn't actually make the cut. And so right now, yes, we do still sin, but our fundamental identity, if you are in Christ, is not just as a sinner, but actually as a saint, as holy, as set apart. So this morning, I wanna look at this truth that you and I through the work of Jesus, what is declared over us that is objectively true, that will never change, even based on circumstances or our behavior, is that you are holy. And so to help us with that this morning, I want to look at this passage out of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're gonna look at verses 9 to 12. So I would encourage you if you brought a Bible, please turn there. You can also go on your phone to cp.church, is our website. And as you go to the home page there, in the lower right corner, you'll see that little icon with the, the, the blue circle and the footsteps. If you click that, you'll see something pop up that says sermon notes. All the text will be there, space to take notes if you want to follow along that way. But I want to go ahead and read this. And remember, this is something that's being written not just to isolated individuals, though it has implications for us as individuals. It's also being written to a body of believers. It's being written to a people, to a community, to a fellowship. It's being written to a church. And what was true of this original audience of the Apostle Peter is true of us here this morning, if you are in Christ. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 to 12, only four verses. Won't be a short sermon, though. Anyway, here we go. All right, just kidding. All right. Chapter nine, or chapter two, verse nine says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's what I want to look at. We're going to look at who you are and who we are as the church, so who you are individually if you're in Christ, who we are as the church, and we're going to look at what we are called to be and then we're going to look lastly at who makes this all possible. And so first, who you are. We see this so beautifully laid out in verse 9. And because I know everybody came here this morning hoping for a grammar lesson, we got to talk, talk grammar for just a moment, all right? Now, what is happening here in this section... We're, Peter is laying out for us is an indicative, all right? Some of you are like twitching right now. You already said SAT, I already have bad memories. Now you're talking about indicatives, and then we're gonna talk about imperatives. But this is so important because the indicative, are statements about reality, about who we are, and an imperative then is what we're called to do. And friends, we have to keep the order. What we see throughout the scriptures, is it is always laid out for us. Here is who you are. And now in light of this objective truth that will never change, now we're called to be a certain kind of people together in the world. So it starts with who you are. And so as you heard this in verse nine, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is the new objective reality for God's people. And these phrases are not something that Peter was like, I don't know how to describe this. Holy Spirit, you got some inspiration for me, what should I put? By the guidance of God's spirit, he is borrowing language that the people of God, the Jewish people would have been super familiar with because he's hearkening back to the Exodus story. The story of deliverance of God's people of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember that story? God rescues them, redeems them, brings them out of slavery. What do you know about that story if you're reading through the book of Exodus? Eventually, right, they get to Mount Sinai and they're given the 10 commandments. But do you see the order? If we're gonna talk indicative and imperative for a moment, God rescues them, God does the work, and then he gives them the law to tell them this is the best possible way to live. I'm not trying to rob you of joy. I'm inviting you in to the joy of my salvation, the Lord is saying, and so I'm giving you this law. It was not the other way around. It was not the 10 commandments given. They did pretty well for a a nice long stretch, all right? They got nine out of 10 like most weeks, and so God's like, cool, I will deliver you now. That is not the way it goes. It did not start with imperatives that led to the indicative. No, it starts with the grace of God. And so look at this. Tell me if any of this language looks familiar. In Exodus 19, verses four to six, we read this. Moses is telling the story of God's people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be, you say, my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you see that emphasis? Bore you on eagles' wings. It's a way to say, I delivered you. I've never had an eagle swoop down and carry me. That sounds amazing, right? But the language here is God is the one who transported them. God brought them from slavery to freedom. It was all God. They didn't do it. And even that imagery that he uses is just to be crystal clear. Friends, you and I didn't do anything to earn our identity. It has been freely bestowed upon us. It has been given to us. And now these words that were spoken of about ancient Israel, Peter is saying, this is what's true of Jesus' church. For anyone who is in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, you're brought in, and so you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And so there's a couple things with this. For one, maybe that language even of chosen race, right? Like, well, that sounds a little arrogant. Well, puffed up, I'm chosen, right? That is not what this is implying. Again, he's like, I bore you on eagle's wings. It's not because you were impressive. In fact, the storyline of the Bible, as God chooses the weak, the overlooked, the foolish, says, those are my people. Maybe if you think about it this way, like I heard one pastor refer to it as the difference between choice or chosen. So you go shopping, maybe you're gonna grill out later today, and so you go to Publix, and you're like looking for that, that choice beef, or that choice meat, right? Like that, that says something about, this has a particular quality about it. That's like, ooh, I'm gonna pick that. Like that's not just the average stuff, like that's good, I can't wait to grill that up, right? That's not what this is saying. You aren't this choice piece of meat, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm impressive, all right? I've done something, or I've earned something. No, you've been simply chosen by God to demonstrate his power and his glory. That's what it's driving at. We've been chosen, so we're this chosen race. Then he continues and he says, we're this royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. So just a couple things with that. The priests were what? The priests were those who had access to the presence of God. It was a very specific group of people. They had to come from Aaron's line. If you know some of the Old Testament history, but now it's communicating, oh, friends, who you are as a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're part of this. Like, There's no greater testimony to the fact that you now belong, you have access. All those insecurities about am I loved and worthy of love and the shame that I carry and how will people respond or how will, will this group, will they, will they reject me? Like All those like, middle school insecurities that never seem to go away. The fact that you are in the priesthood means you have access to the most important place of belonging ever, to be in the presence of God. But what's so surprising as well in this is he says royal. So in God's way of setting things up, you had some that were prophets and some that were priests and some that were kings. But this says a royal priesthood. But that didn't go together. The line of Aaron didn't have the kingly line in it. But Jesus shows up, and what is he? He's both king and he's the priest. Because he's not from the line of Aaron, if you know our study, the life of Abraham. He's the king in the order of Melchizedek, which we don't have time to get into, but just trust me, it's putting those things together, that he's both a king and a priest. He's a prophet as well. But what this is saying is those two come together, and so friends, you are a royal priesthood. It's even better than just the line of Aaron. You have access to God and you're being restored to being a ruler under the rule and reign of Jesus to subdue creation, to be part of his work. And then he says, you're a holy nation. The, the idea here, nation is ethnos. You're part of a particular new humanity that God has created through the work of Jesus. So you're the heart of this whole new group of people. And then lastly, he says, people for his own possession, which isn't quite emphatic enough, actually. The, the underlying meaning and theme of that is you are his most prized possession. I imagine if we got a chance to, to talk and to hang out for a bit, there's something that you own, some possession that you have that would be prized. It would be one of those things like if the house was burning down, you would want to like run in to get, Right? Hopefully you're like, well, my family and then this thing, right? But whatever it is, right? You have something that is this prized thing that feels irreplaceable. Like that's what this is getting at. As I was thinking about that this week, it, it called to mind this this story of uh, our our prized possession, our most prized possession for Heather and I pre kids was Caspian. There he is uh, in all his pride and glory. Uh, Caspian was our 95 pound uh, yellow Labrador Retriever that went everywhere uh, with us um, and it was just this amazing dog. And then you know, our, started to have kids, and we had our family, and it was Christmas night several several years ago, um, and We were celebrating, like everybody does, or Christmas Eve night, I should say. So it's Christmas Eve, all right, and some family and friends had had come over, and everybody's hanging out, and Casby's just losing his mind, like just running everywhere, bringing people a ball, like, somebody throw this to me, just going crazy, like he always would do. And I think we had at least one young kid at at this point, and... Also, it's a chaotic night if you're in vocational ministry. It's like usually there's Christmas Eve services to run and help with all of that. And so, you know, we'd had that and then had some people over. Everybody was leaving. And so at one point, I remember Heather and I like walked out to just say goodbye to, to guests, kind of seeing them uh, out the door um, and, uh, say, you know, saying goodbye. And we got in the house and, like, got our, our daughter put down to bed and just, you know that feeling, right? It's Christmas morning the next day, right? I mean, it's just, like, doesn't matter what's been happening. All of a sudden, there's just, like, this excitement and this, and this enthusiasm. So we woke up the next morning just with all those kind of feelings, right? You're just like, this is so fun. It's going to be great. We'll wake our daughter up and go and do that. Um, but I noticed something was not normal, and it was that there's normally, like, like the moment we start to stir the dog would literally like have his head like right on the bed just like staring you down it was a little creepy but also awesome right and so the dog was normally there but he wasn't and i was like caspian i was like maybe he's out under the tree he's just really excited he went and opened his presence i don't know right i'm not sure how this is playing out but I call from. There's no response. I start looking frantically through all of the various rooms, and there's no response. I go out into the backyard and calling for him. There's no response. All right, we're out in the front yard. People are like, "Merry Christmas," and I'm like, "Caspian!" Right? I'm just like yelling like crazy, ignoring my my neighbors. Right? In fact, I think at some point, Heather's dad ends up coming over to help, kind of drive uh, through the neighborhood because what had apparently happened is, in our excitement of just you know, hanging out with people and even, you know, saying goodbye to people. I think the dog had said, well, I'm gonna go out and say goodbye too. And then we went back into the house and didn't realize he was out front. And so we had locked up the door. And so he was like, all right, real cool people. Christmas Eve, just leaving me out here. And so we're frantic. I mean, it's 30, 40 minutes are, are going by, and then we get word that about three blocks over, there was a family that had seen this nice-looking, very friendly dog, and they had taken him in, but I don't think we had the so They didn't have a way to call, and so uh, we had a family member that, that saw the, the dog, and we actually had this big, you know, being reunited. And it was this moment of like, this is a prized possession. Oh my gosh, we lost this on Christmas morning. As an aside, I feel bad for that family that had these little kids that were probably like, you got us a dog! <laughs> like, anyway, so no fun for them, but we got our prized possession back. But anyway, like that level though of just angst, right? I mean, I'm talking about a dog. I mean, I love dogs, all right, don't get me wrong, but what God is communicating, friends, you're his treasured possession, a people set apart. That's why the... Book of Zephaniah speaks of him like rejoicing over you with loud singing. He's so glad you have access to him. He's so glad that you're part of the family. He doesn't see you now fundamentally as a sinner. He sees you as a saint, as holy. That's what this is communicating. And so, friends, it's helpful to just ask yourself again, like, how do you think about yourself? And I don't mean in some sort of self-esteem way, getting yourself all pumped up, right? Because that's fleeting. That changes with circumstances. I'm talking about something that never changes. And so with this, let's look for a moment then. If this is the new reality, then who are we actually called to be? As we look at the last part of verse 9, and then we'll look at verses 11 to 12. And if you're following along and you're like, hey, do you not like verse 10? We'll come back to it in a moment because I love verse 10, but we're going to skip it for right now. So in verse nine, the second part, after he lays out who we are, he says this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As part of our new identity, holy, set apart, that God has made us saints, that he loves us, that he's forgiven us, like all these truths that we've been looking at together in this series our response, then, should be this, not to earn anything. It all flows out. Again, we're talking indicative, and now here, as we get in these verses, it's some of the imperative. Here's how you're now to live in light of it, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's saying, friends, let's remember what he's done for us, that we were in darkness, that we were enslaved to sin, and that he has brought us into his marvelous light, into his presence. We can be there because of the finished work of Jesus. That you may proclaim. Because guess what? God's mission is not just for you individually, but for us collectively as the church to proclaim all that is excellent and beautiful and true about God and that was what what is beautiful and true about us, and we want more people to experience that, what he's talking about is evangelism, but maybe not in the way we typically think about it, right? You got a bullhorn, you're like yelling at people as they're going into a sporting event. That's not what this is about. I love the way Ed Clowney said this. He said in regards to this verse in evangelism, the heart of evangelism is doxological. And you're like, well, thanks for clearing that up, right? Here's what he means. Doxological, this idea, you think, singing the doxology, this worship, evangelism. The heart of evangelism is worship. It's this overflow. Oh my goodness, I've been brought from darkness into this marvelous light. That we would praise his excellencies. We would give praise for who God is, his character that is unchanging and who he has made us to be. And so it results in this natural evangelism. Not because you have all the answers, but as Peter will later say in his letter, You just get to testify, to bear witness, to account for the hope that you have, to be able to say to people, I don't know, man, this is really tough. This is a really hard season, but like God is with me. I can't explain it all. I don't have all of the answers, but he's worthy of praise. He's rescued me. He's given me a new identity. And however you would communicate that, like that's what we're being invited into. And then Peter continues, and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He can't get away from the indicative. He's like, Beloved, you may feel unworthy, you may not feel lovable, but the word from God this morning to you if you're in Christ is you're beloved. The way that the Father views the Son as beloved, he now views you if you're in Christ. And then he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Peter understands he's writing to a group of people under persecution. Many of them will give their lives to the cause of Christ. Persecution, defamation of their character, all kinds of things that are going to take place. And he's saying, just remember that you are sojourners and exiles, meaning there are going to be aspects of this world where you feel a bit out of place. And what you have to remember is what? You're a royal priesthood the place where you want ultimate belonging you actually have access to. And I know you might wanna fit into this group or you wish this particular group of people or these neighbors liked you or you got invited to this or that, but know this, you will journey, you will be viewed as peculiar and weird and for following Jesus and why are you here on a Sunday morning or why are you with this group of people? But he's saying, you fundamentally have this place of belonging And so, yes, you're a sojourner in exile. And then he calls us, and this is where we get into some of the commands. He says, here's what I'm urging you. He says to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then notice this, which wage war against your soul. If we're talking about having our souls renewed and refreshed, it would be helpful then to pay attention to what actually battles against the health of your soul and my soul. Well, apparently it's these passions of the flesh that there are things that we can give into where we believe the lie that I need this certain thing in order to be happy, to be satisfied, to believe the lie that I am the ultimate, that myself is ultimate, like Adam and Eve reaching for the fruit saying, I wanna be God. Like that lie keeps being perpetuated. It's the dominant discipleship narrative of our culture. And the counter narrative to that is no, to say my identity is found in Christ to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Paul would write about it this way. You can go read Colossians, all of chapter three. It's again, another beautiful reminder. He's been laying out so beautifully in the first couple of chapters, all of the indicatives, all of who we are, and then Paul says this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly, or you could say what is of the flesh in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger and wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that what? You've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, like this new clothing, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, all of this is said not to earn anything, but to live more fully into who we are. Like, hear these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this in regards to our holiness. Holiness, he said, is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. Let me read it one more time. Holiness is not something we're called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. You, if you're in Christ, are holy. It's an objective truth that will never change. And the Lord is simply inviting you by the power, the inworking of the Holy Spirit to lean into that, to live in that way. It brings glory to God, but it also brings joy to you. There's gonna be times, obviously, we mess up and we live in unholy ways. There's grace and forgiveness, but the fundamental reality is Because of Jesus, we are holy. We have his holiness and his righteousness. So it continues, and he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. At this point, he's referring to anyone who's not in Christ, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe a way to think about this is you and I, to be holy means to be set apart, and you're set apart from things, but you're also set apart for things. So you are set apart is what it's saying. Like you're to be set apart from sin, from unrighteousness, from the passions of the flesh, all those things that that Paul lists out in Colossians chapter three, right? We have no trouble coming up with a a list of things that we should be set apart from. And maybe you grew up in an environment, in a church perhaps, that was always talking about, yeah, that's very clear to me what I'm supposed to be set apart from. And there's some good things in that, certainly but don't miss the other side of the coin. You are set apart for things. You're set apart for God's glory. You're set apart for his mission, for his purposes in the world. You're set apart for loving God and and loving neighbor. So don't just think about from, but also think about what you've been set apart for. You've been commissioned individually and collectively. We're the church. I mean, we just welcome new partners and what a great text to be in this morning. What a beautiful picture of what we're called to be as the church. We get to proclaim His excellencies together, and so let's close with this. If there's this truth of who we are, and then who we're called to be, like what we're called, how we're called to live in response to the grace that we received, who makes all of this possible? And I told you I was skipped over verse ten. We're coming back to that. And we'll close by looking at verse ten, because again, as we've seen already there's this cohesiveness to the storyline of scripture, using particular language out of Exodus 19. And here again, Peter, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is not just coming up with some random words to say, but is actually borrowing from the Holy Scriptures, words that would have been familiar to a lot of his context. And so he writes this, this is verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we might read that and think, well, that's really cool. And it is. But there's like layers to this. So if you allow me just a couple of moments, let me just peel back a couple of layers here. Because these words have a particular context. These words are borrowed from the story of Hosea. And if you are not familiar with the story of Hosea, let me just set it up very briefly. Maybe you're like, I think I remember some of this, but here's here's the big idea. God's people have been rebellious and unfaithful to him and his covenant. And so God handpicks Hosea and says, I want you to live as this literally like this living parable, this metaphor to show my people what they're doing to me when they rebel against me, when they're unfaithful to me. He's saying the people of Israel are acting like an unfaithful wife. He's the faithful groom, the husband, and they're acting like an unfaithful, adulterous wife. And so he says, Hosea, I got a project for you. And Hosea says, oh, great, all right? That's um, at least how I interpret this to go along. And, and, and Hosea is given these words from God. He says, there's a woman with a reputation for being unfaithful. She's going to be unfaithful to you, but I want you to marry her and I want you to start a family with her because I want my people to understand vividly what they're doing in our covenantal relationship. And so in chapter one of Hosea, here's the words we get. I'll put it to you this way. These are not coffee cup sort of verses. If these are on your coffee cup as you drink your coffee in the morning, you got the weirdest kitchen in the world, all right? But here's what it says. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, those keeping track at home, that's whoredom three times, all right? Um, Gomer is this woman that he's to marry. I mean, I'm just reading the Bible, all right? Just like send the email to God, I guess, all right? So anyway, like, it's literally, he's just saying, this is what I want you to do so that my people would understand. And guess what? Not only take this woman, Gomer, but I want you to start a family. And I've got some interesting names for these children, Okay, so we continue. You get a few verses later in chapter one, when she had weaned their first child, called No Mercy, those of you looking for children's names, maybe, I don't know, No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said, we'll call his name, Not My People, for you are not My People, and I'm not your God. I I just can't imagine the, 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 the home, right? No Mercy, get over here, right? Like, Not My People, come to dinner. I mean, like, what in the world is happening? But this is to illustrate the realities of what happens when people live in active rebellion. They're not leaning into their identity as God's chosen people and nation, but they're rebelling, they're committing adultery. And so, as the story progresses, this all ties back to verse 10 here in, Peter, or in 1 Peter chapter 2. Because God then says to Hosea, even after Gomer runs off, the trajectory of her life gets worse. She's actually found where she's actually being sold as a servant or as a slave. And God says, go purchase her back. Purchase her at great cost to yourself. Bring her back. And we don't exactly know how this whole story resolves, but it's pointing to the reality of one who has purchased us. And so in Hosea chapter three, one to two, we said this, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And so at great cost to himself, this woman who is stomped on his heart, who has betrayed him. He purchases her freedom, he brings her back, and he seeks to love her. And it cost him 15 shekels of silver and some grain. But friends, you and I are Gomer. And you and I are a people that have not we're not a people. You and I were a people that didn't deserve mercy. In fact, we deserved wrath. And Jesus, at infinite cost to himself, didn't take 15 shekels of silver and a little bit of grain. He took his blood, and it was shut on the cross so that you and I could be brought in. So that these words that we just read, that once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. And he's crazy about you. You're his prized possession. And once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Because what the apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you what? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is your objective reality if you're in Christ unfaithful, adulterous people that God has purchased us. He has made us holy. He sees us as holy. He rejoices over us. And so in light of those truths, church, we are going to rejoice together. So the worship team's gonna come back up. We're gonna respond in song. And during this time, I would encourage you to be thinking through, Lord, what do I need to repent of? And let's remember the gospel together as we sing as we pray. If you're somebody that has elementary kids this morning, during this song, please go get them checked out of the social hall, bring them back so they can join in because we'll have communion after this next song. But let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you praise for all that you've done. Jesus, we thank you that you purchased us with your blood and that your holiness, your righteousness has been credited to us. That you took all of our sin, our shame, that the wrath that should have been poured out on us was instead poured out on you so that we could be brought in. And as Jesus, you are the treasured possession of the Father. Now we have that identity, that we are a holy, set-apart people. May that fuel humility in us. May that fuel joy in us. Would we live in light of that reality? May we sing of your excellencies, of all that you have done. And may we see men, women, and children drawn into this family to have new identities. God, would you help us to be disciples who make disciples? Thank you for the great privilege it is to be part of your church. God, we ask now as we continue to worship that you would get all the praise, the honor, the glory you deserve, and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.